It's amazing the distance that two people can travel apart from each other. There was a, a boy and a girl, same family, brother and sister, and uh, uh, Steve and Lindsay. And they grew up in the same family, and a uh, Christian family, going to church, uh, everything seemed to be going along kind of as, as you'd hope and expect. They went off to university. Uh, Lindsay went off to university, got plugged in, got involved in the, uh, in the kind of CU life, the Christian Union life, got involved in, uh, in all the things that were going on on campus, got involved in a church near to the campus. It just seemed to be going really well. She uh, met someone, got married, uh, settled down into kind of adult life, plugged into the church, hyper, hyper involved. Okay, so uh, Sunday school class, leading youth group, involved in the music, involved in pretty much every committee that was going in the church. If there was an activity on a Monday night, she would have been there as well as every other night that she was there during the week. Lindsay was absolutely uh, just over, uh, over the top involved. Uh, her brother Steve, uh, slightly different story. When Steve went off to university, very bright, very able and intelligent, but he seemed to fall in with the wrong crowd. He had uh, the, the bills to pay, you know, the sort of university fees and so on. And, and he figured out that there was a way to pay for the bills that was probably more... <laughs> that's the most exciting thing that's ever happened here. Uh, and so Steve figured out there was a, a, a way to pay the bills that would be, you know, just a little bit more efficient than getting a job. He realized there was a, a little bit of a drug culture on the campus, he, he was too smart to get into drugs. He didn't want to do that, but he figured out that if there were people who were buying, he could be selling, and you know that's a good way to make money. So he got involved in dealing drugs on campus. Okay, he carried on through university, uh, did well for himself, got a nice car. In fact, was doing so well for himself afterwards that even without what you would call traditional normal employment, uh, Steve was able to live just constantly giving out cash. He could uh, stay in a hotel. He could just uh, be where he wanted to be, drive what he wanted to drive. I mean, in many ways, he was living the life, right? And that carried on for a number of years, living in hotels, driving nice cars, uh, buying whatever he felt like buying, all because he was getting other people addicted on drugs and then being their supplier. You fast forward a few years, brother and a sister raised in the same home. What a distance they traveled apart. Christmas came. Christmas Day for Lindsay and her husband and the children was, as you'd expect, church and, and busyness and turkey and all the kind of normal Christmas uh, traditions. Lots of presents, lots of activity. And she got to the end of the day, sat down on the edge of her bed and just thanked God. She thanked God, thinking about... Um, memories of Christmases past, thinking about the times when her and Steve had enjoyed Christmases together. And, and she just thanked God that now her life was so sorted and she was in such a good place and she wasn't a mess like her brother. She was involved and she was going above and beyond what anyone could expect of her. She was really, really, really doing well. And she told God that. Steve was sat in his hotel room and he got to the end of Christmas Day and he sat on the edge of his bed and the memories were stirred. Memories of growing up with Lindsay, all the, the fun they'd had, all the things they'd been involved in growing up. And where he'd got to now and how empty it all felt, 
He had money, yes. He also had a disease he'd contracted from a male friend. I mean, there was just a whole load of things going on in his life that were so different from her life. And as he sat on the edge of his bed, for the first time in years, he prayed. And he said, God, if you're there, I need you to do something for me because I am a mess. I need mercy from you because otherwise I've got no hope. A brother and a sister raised in the same family, ending up so far apart from each other. Actually, the story doesn't end there. If we fast forward beyond their lives, they end up very far apart because only one of them ends up going to be with Jesus in heaven. And it's not Lindsay. It's a shocking story when you think about it. It's kind of like one of those stories that, that when, you, when you experience it, it's like it takes the wind out of you. Have you ever had that experience playing football or something? You get hit at just the wrong moment and you just can't get a breath. It's like, what? What's going on? How is that possible? She's living such a good life. She's so involved. She's at the church and all the rest of it. And yet Steve's the one after all he's done and all the people he's hurt and all the mess that his life is. How is he the one that gets to go and spend eternity with Jesus? That just makes no sense, does it? Well, I've got two confessions. First of all, it's not a true story. Okay, I made the story up. But but my second confession is this. It's not my story. It's Jesus' story. I've modernized it. I've tweaked it, but that's a story that Jesus told. And I want you to hear Jesus's version because it's even better. It's much more effective, much more helpful. And it's in Luke chapter 18. Luke chapter 18. It's not about a brother and a sister. It's about two men, but two men whose lives were very different. Two men who'd grown up in a privileged position and had ended up being very far apart from each other. And yet both of them brought to a point of praying to God. And yet their prayers are so different. One of them very proud. The other one very desperate. He'd taken advantage of others. He'd got rich off the back of hurting other people. Actually, these stories are remarkably paralleled. But I want us to see the Jesus version. It's in Luke chapter 18, which is on page 877 in the church Bible. And it's uh, just a few verses down, starting at verse 9. It's called The Pharisee and the Tax Collector. We're in this series called Ears to Hear. And we're looking at, I think, five out of about 40 parables that Jesus told. Little short stories uh, that in some cases, and I think this is definitely one of them, pack a punch way beyond their size. This is a story that for the original listeners, the original hearers, it would have taken their breath away. And I want us to feel the force of that. Okay, so let me just read it to you and then we'll make sense of it together and hopefully feel it together. Luke 18, starting at verse 9, Jesus also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Here's the story. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, 
but he beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, Jesus said, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Very short story. Doesn't take hundreds of pages of description to to get a story told in Jesus' day. He just gets it out there fast and powerful. It's a story about two men going up to the temple to pray. And I, I thought I'd kind of tell you a modern version because the moment I start saying two men went up to the temple to pray, if you've been around church for a while, you go, oh yeah, I like this one. You're already familiar with it maybe, or maybe if you haven't heard it, uh, it might still carry a punch, but actually potentially not because when we hear the words Pharisee and tax collector, we tend to get it exactly dead wrong. We see Pharisee, we either uh, hear the word uh, and think Pharisee, a Pharisee, that's like an insult, or we don't know it at all, or we think The Pharisees, they were the bad guys. They were the ones that get Jesus crucified, right? The Pharisees were the ones that were constantly opposing Jesus. Just nasty people. That's not the response of the people hearing the story. The Pharisees were, in many ways, they were like the guardians of society. They were the ones that made sure that everybody in the culture stuck to what was right. The Pharisees were like a a religious political movement that had grown up after Israel had been taken away into exile centuries before. And and their great cry was never again, never again are we going to be so disobedient to God that he has to take us out of our land. And the Pharisees were like the ethic moral police force. And so as much as you might not want to, you know, hang out with a Pharisee, If you were in Jesus' culture, you'd be thankful for them. Thankful that they remind you that you're not supposed to do that on the Sabbath. Thankful that they would remind you the word of the the Lord says, you know, come on, stop that. And they had all these rules and all these guidelines, and the Pharisees were considered kind of the best of the best. They were the best Jews. They were the super Jews. And so we see a Pharisee, and we think negative. But when Jesus told the story, a Pharisee would get a, hmm, Impressive kind of a response. In the same way, we get tax collector completely backwards too because we see tax collector and uh, maybe we think of tax collectors today who are on the whole anonymous, kind of out of sight. We fill in a form. Uh, it's a little bit annoying. We're not big fans, but it's not, you know, it's not an anger-stirring thing, is it? It's just part of life. You pay your taxes or you don't and you go to prison, whatever. But we don't think of the tax man Or maybe if you've been churched enough, you think, tax collector. Matthew is a tax collector, and he gives us the Christmas story. We like him. Or maybe Zacchaeus, he was a tax collector, and he climbed trees. And that's kind of cool, because a lot of the Bible characters are fairly dull. So, yeah, I've got a soft spot for tax collectors and other short people who climb trees. And so we, as you know, in church world, we can end up all kind of like twisted, inside out, upside down, thinking Pharisees are baddies and tax collectors are kind of fun. Uh, if a little bit controversial, and we can totally miss the point of the story. When Jesus says that two men went to the temple to pray, and then he says a Pharisee and a tax collector, the listeners would have said, ooh, this is going to be interesting. That's a tension right away. That's like the best of the best and the worst of the worst. The tax collectors were traitors. 
They'd sold out to Roman occupation. They earned ridiculous amounts of money, but they earned it off the back of their own people. With the protection of the Roman soldiers, always ready to stick a spear in your chest, they were ready to take way beyond what they were supposed to take, and you could do nothing about it, and they would line their own pockets, and uh, they would drive Lexus chariots. I mean, they had everything. They were like the bling people of their culture. In many ways, I would say they were the drug dealers. They were the despised. They were the worst of the worst, the people getting rich at the expense of others. And so when Jesus said a Pharisee and a tax collector went up to the temple to pray, there is no way in the world that they're going up arm in arm. This is not like two teenage girls heading off to the bathroom to do hair or something, right? This is two people who absolutely would be oil and water. They would absolutely despise each other. There would be a tension between them. Whatever happens next, we know that something is going to happen next. And what we get in the story is a report of their prayer, their prayers. They both pray. And you get to see a lot about a person from the way they pray. I'm not going to invite you to analyze each other, but maybe consider your own prayers. What does God get when he hears you praying? What, what clues does your prayer life indicate about your view of God and your view of life. I mean, these two, in the space of about three verses, reveal so much. We get told a lot of words from the Pharisee and a little bit about his posture. We get told a lot about the posture of the tax collector and just a little bit about his words. Let's think about what they say. First of all, the Pharisee. What, what does it say? Every detail is going to help us here. He stands by himself. That's what we're told as far as posture goes. He's separated from others. Eh, Maybe coincidental. Maybe no one else is there and it's a quiet time. Or maybe once you get into what he says, it's actually indicative of how he feels. He stands by himself and he prays in this way, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. And then he lists them, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even worse, that's what he means here, like the worst case, like this tax collector. Notice that he's immediately praying competitively. He's praying about himself in contrast to others. He's, he's kind of puffing out his chest in some way, isn't he? He's sort of exalting himself. He's saying, look, check me out, Lord. You're probably glad I'm finally here. Well, here I am, and this is what I'm going to say. There's an arrogance to this. Now, I'm not sure, from the perspective of the hearers, whether they would say, ooh, I don't like Pharisees, they're so proud, or whether they would simply say, "Mm mm-hmm, yeah, it's all true. I'm not sure. Commentators disagree about it. I, I tend to think you can't be around someone like that for too long without getting just a little bit annoyed, even if it is true, right? And then, as well as making the contrast between himself and others, he then starts talking about what he does. Verse 10, he says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all I get. Okay, let's not skim past that. Let's just think about that. I fast twice a week. Fasting is a very kind of religious thing to do, right? How, how much were the Jews required to fast? How, how many times per year was it a requirement for a Jewish person 
to fast and go without food. Anyone know? Anyone want to guess? How many times per year? Once. On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, on the 10th day of the 7th month, that was the day when they fasted. That was a solemn day of fasting before the Lord. That was the requirement. This guy does it 103 extra times per year. That's impressive, isn't it? I mean, it's entirely optional. You're, you're allowed to fast under the Jewish law. Nothing wrong with it. But it's interesting when Jesus talks about fasting. Remember in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he criticizes the religious leaders for making a show of it. He, he says, come on, if you're going to do that, then, you know, kind of keep it hidden. It's between you and God. Don't make a big old show of how spiritual and religious you are. Or in the terms of this parable, don't stand in the temple and declare it for all to hear. And so this man, this Pharisee, is going way above and beyond what was required as far as fasting. What about tithing? Well, tithing's a little bit more complicated, but basically, tithing was the, the rule by which when they received something, they were supposed to take one-tenth and dedicate it to the Lord. So if you have a harvest, you take the first tenth of the crop and you give it to the Lord, right? Kind of a simple process, but hidden within what it says here, there's just a little extra hint. It, it doesn't say, I tithe on everything that I earn, or something like that. It's everything that I get. And the implication here is that when he went to the marketplace to buy his apples or uh, satsumas or you know whatever, he was getting the fish, whatever in the market, he would get what he was buying and then he would take one-tenth just in case somebody else hadn't tithed. Right, so the farmer or the, the wholesaler or the retailer, somewhere down the line, maybe somebody failed to tithe. So I'll just be extra careful. Take a tenth, give it to the Lord. He's going above and beyond what was required. What does that kind of stir in people that are listening? It, surely it stirs a sense of being impressed, Right? If, if God sets the standard here, the Pharisees up here, and most of us know we're down here, but this guy, wow, what a superstar. Aren't we thankful there's people like that to hold society together? That would potentially be the response from the, the Jewish people, right? He's better than others if only we could all do better. He, he fasts more than necessary. He tithes, you know, kind of extremely. Everything about this guy is impressive, but it doesn't feel right. And as Jesus is telling this story, that maybe there's a growing sense in the listeners that, hang on a minute, it doesn't sound like ultimately Jesus is going to affirm this guy, at least not in the way he might expect. There must be something that's not right here. Well, then we're taken to the other chap, the tax collector. And what does it tell us about him? It tells us, uh, verse 13, the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but he beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Very different kind of prayer, isn't it? Totally different view of himself. Maybe a different view of God. We're told, first of all, in terms of posture, 
We know that the Pharisee stood by himself, and yet while he was praying, he's referring to this tax collector. So geographically, they've got to be sort of within reach or within vision, like visual distance of each other, right? Otherwise, he can't say this tax collector behind the wall that I cannot see. It's not about superpowers, right? So, so the, the Pharisee can somehow see the tax collector, uh, maybe I should have given you a map, but in the temple, what would come to their minds is that the, the men, everyone, every male of Israel, every Jewish man who isn't a priest can go as far as the court of Israel. So it's kind of within, on the temple mount, within the temple to this place where the temple's right there in front of you and there's the altar and there's a, a kind of a barricade, a fence, and this is where the men could come. And they'd bring their sacrifices and hand them over to the priest and the priest would take it to the altar, make the sacrifice, and this is kind of Jewish man's own. It's actually quite a narrow space. Maybe, just to get a sense of it, maybe kind of the width of of this hall. But maybe not too much deeper than three, maybe four rows. It wasn't a big square. It was a, a narrow strip. And we're told that the tax collector was standing far off. So where would he be? He can't be within that because it's like, you know, me to Dave. That's not exactly far off from where I am, but he's standing far off. I think where he probably is, is back in the, the big square area behind, which was called the Court of Women. So you've got the Court of Israel where the men could come, no one beyond that except the priests. And behind the court of Israel, where the men were, was the court of women, where the women could come. They, they could come further than the Gentile, but they couldn't come all the way up to the front. They couldn't get a good view. And so maybe, it seems to me, this tax collector has come just through the gate, and then he's just stopped. He can't come any further. He just can't bring himself even to approach and come up close, but from where the Pharisee is, front and center, you know, the best seats in the house, he could look back and see him in the distance. And the tax collector is there among any women that were gathered. And he does something that culturally is incredibly feminine. He beats on his chest. Have you ever seen a, a, a news clip from the Middle East when, when there's a, a death and they, they have the, I suppose you could call them professional mourners, the people that are paid to come and make a loud noise to show the significance of the person who's died? It's always women and it's always kind of overpowering. There's lots of kind of shrieking and screaming and noises I'm not going to make and this kind of extreme I'm so sad kind of gesture, just beating on the breast and that's what the tax collector's doing, way back, just inside the gate, pounding on his chest, he would not even look up to heaven. Just, oh. And what does he pray? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Actually, what he says there is, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He uses the article. He, he, he makes it the. He doesn't say just one of many. It's like, no, I, I'm the sinner. Remember Paul, the apostle Paul, the, you know, the great hero? He called himself the chief of sinners. It's the same kind of attitude. It's that sense of when God convicts you of your sin, you don't compare yourself to others. You just feel terrible about yourself. 
And you don't, in that moment, kind of convince yourself, yeah, but I'm not as bad as, you know, drug dealers and pedophiles and, you know, people on television and the rich and the famous. I'm not as bad as them. No, when God convicts you, you just go, oh, I'm the sinner. I'm the chief of, I'm the worst of sinners. Have mercy on me. It's a cry of desperation. It's not a cry of, check me out, Lord. It's not a cry of, am I good enough, Lord? Or, I am good enough, Lord. It's just a cry of, oh, Lord, God, I need mercy. You're the judge. I'm the sinner. We all agree, you and me agree on the outcome. If there is to be a verdict, I'm the guilty one. If there's to be any judgment, I'm the one that gets to receive it. I, uh, the, the only hope I've got is that you show mercy to me. But actually, you know what? He, he uses a word there in, in the way that Jesus told it, the way that it's written in the original. He uses a word there that isn't just the word mercy. It is the word. It's legitimately translated as mercy. But there's a sort of general word for mercy, and there's a more specific word. The general word is kind of like the word mercy, right? It just, it just means mercy, be merciful to me. Did anyone play mercy at school? It was banned in my primary school. We used to interlace fingers. Remember that? And like whoever was the strongest would kind of, you know, and the weak one would be like, oh, mercy. And when you cried mercy, they're supposed to let go. It was kind of silly. And that, along with British Bulldogs, soon got banned. But that, that's kind of the idea. Like, I deserve to lose because I've been utterly humiliated in front of my friends, but this is really hurting, and I don't want to cry, so I'm going to cry mercy, right? Because crying is like the ultimate terrible thing when you're eight years old and male. So, you know, you just go, oh, mercy, and they'd let go. And that's what mercy means. It's like, Lord, you are judging me rightly. Please show me mercy and let go. Don't follow through. But the word he uses here is not just generic kind of be merciful, He uses a word that refers to the atoning sacrifice. Maybe some of you know that in the temple, right within the the, the holy of holies, this room that only the high priest could go in and only once a year, there was the Ark of the Covenant. And this was the place where the, the, the high priest would come with blood to sprinkle on the top of the Ark of the Covenant, which was called the mercy seat. It's that word. It's the, the, the kind of the, the symbolic representation of how blood can take away the guilt of sin. And as the high priest would bring it into the holy of holies and sprinkle it on behalf of the nation, it would cover over the sin. It would atone for the sin. It would make things right between a holy God and an unholy people. And so this tax collector stood in the distance, not even daring to lift up his eyes, beating on his chest, cries out to God, I'm the sinner, and I need you to make a merciful or an atoning sacrifice for me. Isn't that powerful? Just, just think of that. Just, just try to picture that in your mind. It's, it's really hard for us to imagine, but in front of him, uh, just not too far, like 
the back wall from here, there's some steps and up into the court of Israel and beyond that the altar and then the temple and on the altar the smoke rising up and the, the smell of, of, of animals being sacrificed as a symbolic representative, representation of the cost of sin. We sin, sin leads to death. This animal is dying in my place. And this man doesn't bring a sacrifice. He just cries out to God and says, I need you to provide a sacrifice for me because I've got nothing. I can't fix myself. I can't live up to a certain standard. I am absolutely bankrupt before you. And I need you to make an atoning sacrifice for me, the sinner. It's powerful, isn't it? It's a powerful prayer. And so then Jesus comes to the end of the story. We've got the Pharisee praying his check me out prayer with lots of eyes in it. It's like the I prayer, all right, all the way through. I do this, I do that. I'm not like him, I'm not like him, I'm really special. And then there's the tax collector. And he focuses completely on God. And all he can say about himself is that he's the sinner. And his only hope is in God's merciful sacrifice. What's Jesus going to do with that? How's this story going to resolve? How, how's it going to play out now? Because everybody there would be moved by the, the, the simplicity but the depth of that second prayer. Maybe everybody there would be kind of a little bit secretly bugged by the first chap. Like, oh man, he's so arrogant. What's going to happen? Maybe, maybe in his mercy, God is going to allow the tax collector some sort of limited favor. Maybe. Depends what mood they're in, I would imagine. But then Jesus drops the punchline on them. And if any story is going to win people in Israel, it's this one. Because in verse 14, he says, I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified. That's an amazing thought. Justified. It's a, a word that has all sorts of legal kind of weight to it. But basically, it means that even though he was the sinner, verdict is justified. Righteous. No guilt. No criminal record. Justified. That man goes home justified? That's astonishing. Then look at the next word. Rather than the other. See see what that means? The tax collector who was a traitor who had got rich off the back of hurting other people, a man who had lived as if God was irrelevant and God's promises were irrelevant, who'd done everything wrong in every possible way, had come to a point of conviction, and that one prayer meant that God declared him justified. And the other guy who had kept the rules and been good and tried to live up to the standards, forget that, lived beyond the standards in every way, like Mr. Superguy, he went home not justified. That's shocking. Can that be true? Is it possible that that story can even be true? That's what they would have been thinking. That's what we need to be thinking. Because if we're struggling with that and going, no, sure, no, hang on, surely he deserves some credit, then we haven't understood the teaching of Jesus yet. 
If there's any way in which we are still doing what humans always do and saying that some people deserve and other people deserve opposite, that, you know, there's some people that are good enough, and that usually includes us, you know, I'm not like him, and I'm not like him, and I'm not like this one, and I've not been on Crime Stoppers, and I've not been on Crime Watch, and I, you know, there's no wanted posters for me. I'm good enough, and there are others who deserve God's judgment no matter what they say. We are completely in the wrong place as far as Jesus' teaching is concerned, because the reality is that no matter how good you are, no matter how well you perform, no matter how spotless you may think your record is, the reality is that by God's standards, you've got nothing. By God's standards, you, like me and like everyone else here, you are the sinner. It's not that, you know, here's God's standard, 50 out of 50, and we just kind of fall short because we've all fallen short of the glory of God. We don't fall short of the glory of God by getting 49 out of 50. We fall short of the glory of God, every one of us, by getting zero out of 50, by having precisely nothing to offer Him. We're all desperately, desperately broken. Desperately, desperately worthy of judgment, desperately, desperately in need of someone else to make whatever sacrifice it takes so that we have some hope before God. That's our only hope. There's nothing we can do. There's nothing we can bring. There's nothing that we can try harder at. There's no leaf we can turn over. There's no kind of resolution we can make. There's nothing that we can do that's going to twist God's arm into being convinced that somehow we are now kind of on His level when it comes to the standard of how we're supposed to be living. And so you look at the Pharisee and you look at the tax collector and actually these two are like a window into reality. We think that the Pharisee's impressive, or maybe we're not impressed by him, but we tend to be impressed by other equivalents. We think that, you know, if we don't do this and do do that and don't commit these crimes and do pay our taxes, and if we do go to church and do get involved and obviously vote and get involved with the Cub Scouts or whatever, if we do what is considered good in our culture, then surely that's got to add up to some credit before God. And Jesus says, no. Nothing. That adds up to absolutely nothing because it's nowhere near what God wants from us. But then what about the other guy? How can that make sense? How is it possible that he can just live the life he wanted to live, drive the car he wanted to drive, have you know, a really expensive watch and you know, all the money in his bank? How could he do that and then just say one sentence and everything's changed? The secret is not the sentence. The secret is the sacrifice. If you look down the page past this story, uh, there's a couple of stories that follow. There's some little children that want to come to Jesus, and Jesus says, let them come. And then there's this rich ruler who's kind of you know, impressed with himself, and he's got lots of money, and he comes uh, to Jesus. And um, Jesus basically says something to him that makes him go away sad. We're not going to tell that whole story now. But verse 24, look at this. Jesus, seeing that he had become sad, said to the disciples and people around, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. 
He's not saying anything about some made-up gate in Jerusalem and camels getting down on their knees or any of that nonsense, if you've ever heard it. That's total uh, baseless rubbish, really. What he's saying is, imagine a needle, imagine a camel, it ain't getting through. It's that ridiculous. It's not unlikely. It's not slightly difficult. It's impossible to get a beast that size through a hole that small. And Jesus is saying that anyone who is rich, that's how difficult it is for them to enter the kingdom of God. That's, that's insane. That's over the top. So the response of those who heard it was, then who can be saved? If the rich, who are obviously blessed by God, can't do it, then who can be saved? And Jesus' response is telling here. He doesn't say, well, okay, it's those who try extra hard. It's those who go above and beyond. No, his response is, verse 27, what is impossible with man is possible with God. Drop down a couple more verses. And Jesus takes the 12 in verse 31 and he says to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spat upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day he will rise. But they understood none of these things. The saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp what was said. How can any human be saved? With man, with humans, it is impossible. It's not unlikely. It's not slightly difficult. It's not, you know, kind of tricky. It's absolutely impossible. But what is impossible with humans is possible with God. Two verses later, Jesus is saying to his disciples, we're going to Jerusalem and I'm going to die on the cross. That's how it's possible. Remember the prayer of the tax collector? God, I need you to make an atoning sacrifice, somehow do something that is going to deal with sin. I need you to do that for me because I'm the sinner. And within a few chapters, God does exactly that. Takes his own son, has him nailed on a cross as a sacrifice to pay the penalty for not his sins. He didn't do any, didn't have any. But he died innocent sacrifice to pay the penalty for your sins and for mine. It's impossible with man, but it's possible with God because that's how far God was willing to go. It's like a, a message full of like, whoa, type points, right? I mean, start off with Steve and Lindsay and go, that's, well, that's a bit heavy. That's a bit offensive. I'm a little bit bothered by that. And then you go to the story Jesus told and see it in its original context. And it's like, oh my goodness, that's really offensive. And then you get to the cross and you go, okay, forget everything else. That's the most offensive thing you could ever say, that the son of God is going to die on a cross because of my sin. Why would he do that? That's the big question of the Bible. Why would God do that? The simple answer is because that's the kind of God he is. And the better question is not so much why would he do that, but what's our response to it? We could spend the whole of eternity trying to make sense of why he did it, and I think we will, but but what's our response? Because we don't have the whole of eternity to come up with a response to that. The question is, Are we going to go with plan Pharisee or with plan tax collector? 
Plan Pharisee is to say, well, I'm just going to try my hardest. I'm going to do my best. I'm going to ignore what Jesus says, and I'm going to bank on the fact that what every other human seems to think must be true, even though it goes against what Jesus says, and I'm just going to do the best that I possibly can, and hopefully, you know, the good will outweigh the bad. And if you want to, you can take that strategy and take it into eternity and see how it works. But here's the thing. Jesus, who comes from eternity, says that's not how it works. It's never been about scales. It's never been about the good outweighing the bad. It's all about whether you're prepared to see yourself the way God sees you. Whether you're prepared to come to a place where you say, actually, forget plan Pharisee. I'm on plan the sinner. I'm on plan I've got nothing. My hands are empty. I've got nothing that I can bring. All I can do is cry out to God. And ask him to do something that's impossible for me to do. To make a sacrifice good enough to pay for my sin. That's the pathway forward. That's the only option that's going to give any hope. And the beauty of it for us is we're not stood there listening to Jesus, scratching our heads, trying to make sense of it. We're not with the disciples hearing explanations about Jesus going to the cross and going, I don't get that. Do you get that? I don't get that. We're after the fact with the Bible on our laps and with an explanation right there in ink on the page telling us that with man it's impossible, but with God it's possible. And we've got the explanation of how he did it. He took his own son and he made him the atoning, mercy-giving sacrifice so that our sins can be paid for, every one of them. Everything we've ever done, everything we've ever said, everything we've ever thought, past, present, future, He's paid it. He's paid the price. He's paid it fully. He's paid it finally. He's paid it freely, and he's paid it forever. And it's there in front of us as an offer. Would you like the mercy of God? Or do you prefer to go the pride way? That's the option. Because what's the point of the story? Notice how Jesus puts it. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled but the one who humbles himself will be exalted.